Here's who was on the compilation. Gladys Knight, Steve Winwood, Repercussions, Our Little Band, with Curtis Mayfield singing on it, Lenny Kravitz, Whitney Houston, Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, The Isley Brothers, Bramford Marsalis, Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, <laughs> Rod Stewart, Phil Collins, Stevie Wonder, and Elton John. Good that God, so, so you guys did We Are The World. You, you, your first record was We Are The World. <laughs> Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Danny Wyatt, a.k.a. Mixmaster Wyatt, a multi-platinum, Grammy, and Emmy-nominated audio engineer with credits from Ultra Records to Old Dirty Bastard to Nora Jones, and one of the most influential mixing and mastering instructors and course designers. In the last decade, he taught over 1,000 producers and audio engineers how to mix and master modern styles of music from deep house, minimal techno, and trance to hip-hop, trap, dubstep, and drum and bass. Many of his students have had their tracks hit the iTunes and Beatport charts. After teaching at Dubspot, a school for budding DJ producers, he went on to launch his own school called the Mixmaster Wyatt Academy, where you can learn everything about composition, production, mixing, and mastering from the basics all the way to advanced learning. You can check all that out at MixmasterWyatt.com. Mixmaster Wyatt came to my attention through one of our rock stars, a listener named Dan Giffen. Shout out to you, Dan. Thank you so much for the introduction. And you may or may not know this, but I am a self-confessed closet DJ on the side that constantly <laughs> craves insights into EDM production, mixing, and mastering. In fact, I'll never get back those countless hours spent on YouTube searching for the secrets of dubstep bass wobbles. And though I start this interview as a DJ wannabe, I am hoping that after talking to this mix master, I can finish up as the next Skrillex meets Kill the Noise hopeful. So thank you, Dan Giffen, for the introduction. And thank you, mix master Danny Wyatt, for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. Danny, are you ready to rock, man? I am ready to rock on Halloween. I'm ready. Nice, man. Um, <laughs> what uh, What's the term, if we're, if we're going to rock, what's the term we would use for EDM music? Are we ready to what? Drop the bass or something? Uh, go hard. Go you know, hard. I think, I think are, you, are, are you ready to go hard? All right, cool. I'm so glad I asked. I never <laughs> would have guessed that that was what I was looking for. Uh, yeah, are you ready to rage? But I think I think we're just going to... I like that one, man. Ready to rage. Let's, let's rage. All right, All let's, right. Let's, ready to rage. Okay, so this question is, uh, uh, is typical on the one hand and a little bit goofy on the other, and that pretty much sums up me. So I like to ask, you know, when you were starting out in recording or in production, or perhaps DJing, what did it smell like to you? Uh, it smelled like new teen spirit. No, it <laughs> smelled like uh, like new studio construction. You know, the smell of plywood, new carpet, carpet glue, 
and uh, the smell of Megami cables, which have a smell to them. In they case, do. You know, exactly. If you know, you know. Um, Especially and, when they're new. When they're older, they might not smell like so good anymore after you spill no. beer on them, right? <laughs> exactly. No, but when they're new and they just come right out of the out of the box, um, all wrapped up, neat. They'll never be that neat again. Uh, yeah, I think it, it smelled like that. It smelled like. You know, probably. Well, I'll leave it at that. I think that it's a kid's show, but it, yeah, it smelled like Megami cables. <laughs> you know what? It's actually <laughs> just to be safe, just so I'd never have to proof it and and uh, censor the show. I just rate it explicit on uh, <laughs> iTunes. So if you feel okay. the need to say something, you just say it. Well, I have kids too, so it's right, my kids' too. show. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, it's Megami cables is what it smelled like. All right, cool, man. Now, what about um, you know? Obviously, in the introduction, I've let people know that you know a lot about producing electronic music, dance music. I, when I think of dance music, I think of either a room full of, you know, bobbing heads and, and fists and hands pumping in the air and laser lights going everywhere. Or I think about, um, you know, like cool blue lights and, and fog kind of rolling through a smoky uh, uh, South Beach Miami lounge setting <laughs> in a trendy hotel. What, sure. what what about the smell of that? Did you start out in a DJ environment? Were you a DJ first before you got into this production? No, no. I started out as a musician playing uh, actual instruments. Um, I played percussion and uh, I started out in a band called Repercussions, which was signed to Warner Brothers in the late 90s. And the guy who signed us was Lenny Warnerker, who signed Prince, same guy. Nice. Um, and so we we got signed based on one song. They flew us out to LA and we got like a two million dollar record deal. Wow. And and we and we and we and nobody trusted us because we were young. So we had a uh, uh, Gary Katz from Steely Dan, the producer of Steely Dan was our chaperone. We worked with him and Elliot Shiner who mixed, you know, produced the Eagles and Steely Dan. We had the classic rock crew um, set up by Warner Brothers, and we were in uh, at River Sound, which was Donald Fagan's studio, for a year making the album. Um, Did they let you keep the band name? Uh, yeah, Repercussions. Yeah, they liked it. It was fine. And so we were working on our own album, and then Lenny Warnaker had the idea of doing a tribute album for Curtis Mayfield, who had an accident and became paralyzed. And so we we did a cover of a song called Let's Do It Again. We played it for him over the phone, and he hadn't sung since his accident where he became paralyzed. A light fell at, at a show. Wow. And he said, he said, I want to sing the part in this song, you know, and this is Curtis Mayfield, and this is my first production. Uh, as on as a major label producer, and I played on it as a musician and recorded it. And um, so we flew down to Atlanta, and you know we waited for four hours at his estate, and he finally showed up and came, and he sang his part on "Let's Do It Again." And everyone, you know, he was in a wheelchair, in a bed, and and uh, we had a U eighty seven there. Ellie Shiner was there, Gary Katz, and myself. And it was the first time he had sung since his accident. It was the thing that got him back singing, wow. which is pretty, yeah, it's insane. So, so that, that was how I started, not as a DJ, but as a musician. So here, here's my first release as a major label 
producer, engineer, artist. Uh, so here's who was on the compilation. Gladys Knight, Steve Winwood, Repercussions, Our Little Band, with Curtis Mayfield singing on it, Lenny Kravitz, Whitney Houston, Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, the Isley Brothers, Bramford Marsalis, Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, <laughs> Rod Stewart, Phil Collins, Stevie Wonder, and Elton John. Good that God. Was- <laughs> so, so you guys did We Are the World. You, you, your first record was We Are the World. <laughs> yeah, except for it was 17 tracks. And that's how, that's how I debuted into this business. That's um, amazing. You know what's really, really remarkable to me, too, is that Curtis wanted to do that with you guys, despite the name of your band, Repercussions, here on Halloween, as you mentioned that would imply, of course, that you guys were all dressed up like the Grim Reaper, Reaper and you were playing um, hand drums with with scythes, you know, yeah, and, and well, you're no, still like, come on, bring it on, guys. <laughs> well, it was spelled a little different. Uh, it wasn't Reaper like Reaper, but as in the traditional <laughs> spelling of repercussions. But um, no, it was amazing. You know, it was amazing that he wanted to record with a little band that really nobody had heard of and and that, you know, it inspired him to to sing again and uh, it was, you know, that it was, that was by far probably the most emotional moment ever for me in the record business was to meet him, to have him sing on our track. And we even did a video with him, a music video, and to be included in that compilation and to start off like that. I mean, it's like, it was, it, when we mixed that song, uh, for uh, two weeks in the studio, every time we mixed it, everyone cried in the room. I swear, (laughs) you know, it was that kind of thing. Um, So anyway, uh, so so I started, yeah, it was, it was, is amazing. And so I started doing that and then, uh, you know, lots of, of years in my own boutique recording studio, which we called Temple of Soul in New York City. We were in the New Yorker hotel on the 15th floor. It was a sort of inexpensive hotel for European tourists and they had an empty floor so they thought it would be cool if they rented it out to, you know, music and production people, which was like the worst idea ever, I think, that they <laughs> had. And uh, we were there for three years. I was, I had one of the first Pro Tools studios in New York City, which was a kind of a scary idea because it was very new technology and it didn't work too good at first, mm-hmm. but it later did mature. Um, but we lost lots of people's like best takes ever of things, um, which was hard, scary, but it, it got better. And so anyway, I was a producer engineer in New York City for 10 years or more in my own studio. And then I started to teach at SAE. And then, like you said earlier, uh, also went from SAE to DubSpot and then my own school now, MixMasterWyatt.com. Well, so now, you know, you obviously you have this special specialty in EDM stuff. Did that sort of evolve with you starting out at DubSpot, which I don't know a ton about them, but I noticed them before as being, you know, potentially a cool place to go learn EDM as well. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I was at SAE, which was, you know, for five years, which was consoles and tape machines Mm-hmm. and and stuff like that and technology digital technology was starting to mature and get better and you know when it first came out it was sort of like the little brother and analog was the big brother 
and people made fun of it and, yeah. you know, including a lot of my mentors. And when I started in the business, it was analog. I mean, there were a couple digital tools, but it was all tape machines and, you know, even digital tape machines and consoles and stuff. So I was really there for the transition. I did all kinds of music in New York City and dance music was part of it, but hip hop was a big part of it. I was the sort of head engineer for Raucous Records, which is Rupert Murdoch's son's label with two two of his friends from Brown. And we had the cool backpacker hip hop going on with Mostef and Talib Kweli. Uh, so I did all the sound bombing records, lots and lots of, of backpacker hip hop that became famous. But I also did a lot of club music as well. So it, it was just being in New York City on Friday and Saturday night there's a club going on and it's a, it was a real epicenter for that. And Dubspot, uh, you know, started out as a DJ school. Uh, I was the first mixing and mastering teacher. When I first started teaching at Dubspot, we didn't have a classroom and I would teach classes out of my house in Brooklyn. <laughs> wow. And the owner said, Danny, don't worry, I'm going to get you a classroom. I'm going to get you a classroom. And he later did. And so, but, but, you know, I used to teach mixing and mastering outside of the DJ room and it was so loud, you know, like it was boosh, boosh, boosh. and I was like, okay, guys, now we're going to turn this up a half a DB, you know? And like, it was, it was insane. <laughs> so, so finally, you know, I started it. I taught out of my house for over a year, I think, or more. And then we came back and we had a room at Dubspot. That's so, cool, man. Well, so, hey, quick question for you. Yes. Um, what is backpacker hip hop? Backpacker hip hop is uh, non-commercial hip hop. It is, you know, people who were not only talking about money and guns and cars and clothes. Um, right. So like so. Dig Diggable Planets, would they be in that sure, genre? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. They ended up having a pop sort of hit track. But yeah, I, you know, it, it's funny because, like I said, there were certain hip hop acts that started non-commercial, some even anti-commercial, but it caught on, you know, NWA, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they didn't. I mean, I think they knew what they were doing, but they were pretty anti-establishment and it became incredibly popular. So a little bit of that's what happened with most deaf, Talib Kweli, uh, other acts from raucous where it was cool because they weren't as mainstream mm -hmm. but they became very popular because people thought they were saying real things and had integrity because you know? college kids <laughs> yeah because because college kids exactly exactly you know well, i was out in the midwest in st louis you know and sure enough we were we were discovering all these things or i was discovering through through my friends who had come from the east coast who knew more than i did but I'm sure it was uh, when you said backpacker. I'm thinking like you're talking about the the college kids with backpacks. Too. But but that's what it is. That's yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. No, it's not REI people in the Himalayas. But but yeah, no, it was it was more the college kids. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. I was going to ask you. You know, one of my favorite records that I've always just I'll always go back to it is the brand new Heavy's Heavy Heavy Rhyme. Do you know that yes. record? Yeah, I played percussion uh, no. on tour. Oh yeah, oh yes, and uh, and I'm and I also did a recording with India Davenport for Ultra Records for Wax Poetic, which also you know featured Nora Jones on that compilation as well. So, oh uh, yeah, I played per, uh, percussion on for, with a couple shows on tour with them, and they were amazing, and they were probably the, the closest thing to what repercussions was, which was sort of like retro, very optimistic 
soul music played on real instruments. Interesting. Yeah. I love the real <laughs> instrument thing and I want to see it come back again. I want more of it. I do remember, you know, um, LL Cool J, Body Count, that was sort of the live band thing, but it was sort of leaning towards the heavy, sure, heavy sound, right? And yeah, I don't yeah, remember I whether that came first or later, but. I think it came a little later, but real instruments will come back because laptops and plugins are so accessible that a lot of that music is the music that's being made now. And of course, a lot of it's just absolutely brilliant. And maybe it's harder to get someone who plays an instrument and get a microphone and record it. But my favorite music, you know, really has a little bit of a blend of both. And that, I think that hopefully will be the future, which is sort of like the tightness of electronic productions with the looseness of some human imperfection and performance. I mean, I know how I do it. I plug something in and I play and then I go grab the one bar where I was in the pocket. I just loop loop it till the end of the song. (gasps) Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of ways to do it. And that's, that's a lot of fun. I guess pretty lights is kind of an interesting example of a guy who, what did he do? He went to a bunch of musicians, recorded them and then printed them to vinyl and then sampled them. You know, I mean, like, there's all kinds of things you can do, too, with organic things that, you know, yeah, well, takes, what, what takes about, it out of the sam- you know, sample pack world. That yeah, someone, like Gautier. Wasn't that their big story behind somebody that I used to know, which was, was that the title of the song? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, what, that they he, they sampled the instruments and then programmed his his own samples of his own playing back or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, yeah, somebody, a student of mine played me something where they just sampled everything from their kitchen and made a track. And it was insane how good it was. Fresh sounds, you know, fre- even if even if it's not the fanciest mic. You know, I think our ears start to shut off when we hear, hear the same sounds all the time. They yeah, just, absolutely. They're not fresh. I am making this prediction on this podcast that we're, we're going to see more more organic elements in music, you know, and it's funny because, man, you know, rock, it's not, you just don't, it's not cool right now, (laughs) you know? Dang uh, it, I just released my (laughs) rock record. (laughs) Well, it's going to be cool now. Now it's going to be cool again. But I mean, seriously, you know, you know, if you listen to the radio, you drive around commercial radio, I mean, there's just, it's not happening, but I've been doing this so long that I've seen skinny jeans, come into fashion Mm -hmm. and then bell bottoms came into fashion and then skinny jeans again. Mm -hmm. And I've seen rock kind of be big and then go away and come back. And it all, it all cycles, you know, just like fashion. It does. Um, but I'm going to throw out a a prediction or or a a theory about what you just described about sort of the natural sounds coming back. So laptops arrived, computers arrived, all of a sudden there was garage band. Everybody had access to, making their own music with their own stuff. But the only way to get sounds was to kind of pull sounds from the little loop library over and and program from there or use whatever sample libraries came with it or, you know, you went out and purchased. And probably now, you know, the interfaces, the quality of the simple, inexpensive USB mics and headphones and everything have all the bar has dropped so low that now everybody's going to have the ability to get a pretty great acoustical recording into that garage band on the laptop for for their own productions. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And they shouldn't shy away from that just because they don't have a very fancy mic or 
preamp or anything. And and there's a charm to lo-fi things that are really honest. Um, and I think there's more of that. I totally agree. Yeah. And I think it's going to be cool. You know, I mean, it's already cool. Yeah. Um, but, All right. but well, yeah, exciting stuff. So I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping into some heavy hitting questions here. But before we get going, Danny, I like to ask our guests for an inspirational quote. Have you got something you'd like to share with us about getting excited about recording music? Yes, yes. And I hope you haven't gotten this quote before, but my favorite inspirational quote is from Hunter S. Thompson nice. uh, about the music business. And he says, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> I love it. I've, I have heard that quote before. It's such a great one. Great punchline. Uh, <laughs> so that's my favorite quote. And the, the inspirational part about it is just a few things. One, independent music is thriving. You know, I entered this game through the major label portal, you know, when where people were like lighting cigars with thousand dollar bills and we had sushi three times a day in the studio. And, you know, there was a lot of it was like an evil fraternity and there was a lot of waste, um, honestly. And uh, and then, you know, I had a lot of very talented friends who got signed to record deals and they wouldn't put the record out, but they wouldn't release the artist. So I agree with Hunter S. Thompson. But I think what we're seeing now uh, is that independent music is thriving mm-hmm. and and. It's it's much less of a cruel, shallow money trench with a long plastic hallway. It, it, there's more of a meritocracy. There's more, uh, even though there's still music marketing and stuff. There's st- it's more people's choice and less corporate, you know, driven in a way. And I think that that is a beautiful evolution. That the nature of the business itself has changed. And when I when I listen to you know, when I go to Beatport, for example, where a lot of our students, you know, get, have their releases and stuff that I mix and master ends up there. And I listen through to all these independent labels and all these independent producers and and of, and engineers, too, you know, because there's engineering happening. I'm just I'm blown away by the, the creativity, the work ethic of everybody the HD precision of the mixing mm-hmm. and the inventiveness of the music, it, you know, it's incredible. And this never could have happened if we were stuck with the same five record companies. So anyway, that's yeah, my Yeah, because all those new guys, they would have had to be our assistant first, so we could have kept them down. <laughs> well, yeah. And then, of course, if they're your assistant, you never want them to succeed, you know, and you become a permanent assistant. And, you know, that's another long shallow terrible we're joking of course but no i'm with you man i like that you call it a meritocracy and i know that a a lot of complaints that people have about the quality of of the art form that goes out there is that you know maybe people aren't incentivized enough to put in the the real ten thousand hours towards mastery or maybe people lean on these automation tools too much but i sort of suspect that while both of those statements are probably true about a lot of the um, commonly shared art 
that is produced by everybody. At the same time, they're also probably just growing pains of the fact that art, the art form is now accessible to everybody and people will get used to it. I mean, you, my, I mean, I love my daughter and she, I, I've learned a lot from listening to the music that she wants to play from the backseat when she <laughs> quote DJs in the car. Um, and at the same time, there's stuff that, you know, I'm hearing over and over again in music productions, which I just, you know, to my ear is, not always something that I want to hear. And I think a lot of people feel that way about stuff that's too rigid or it's too auto-tuned or it's too this or it's too that. But yeah. um, we'll get used to that, you know, and then people will want something that breaks breaks free of that a little bit. And that'll probably be the, you know, the room for art. I'm talking a lot here. I'm just trying to say yes <laughs> to what you said. <laughs> no, no, I totally, I, I agree. I get a lot of, you know, music thrown at me all the time from, you know, at our school where, you know, the, the first day of class is orientation, but the second day of class of mixing foundations, which is our sort of our entry course for, for people to learn the foundations of mixing. All we do is listen to what we call their reference tracks, their favorite tracks. Mm -hmm. And I say, bring me one or two of your favorite tracks and let's deconstruct them and analyze them and talk. And then everybody also who's in the class gets to hear what everyone else thinks is dope and cool. And so, man, you know, and doing this, you know, all the time from with people all over the world, I get to hear just in insane tracks mm -hmm. um, and a great variety. And yeah, there's some bad stuff out there for sure, but there's a lot of good stuff and, yeah. and there's a lot of great stuff. Well, you know what else is fascinating to me that I see because I, I have these fantastic interns that I get an opportunity to work with and they, they all see that process where they come in and they already have a style of music that they enjoy, right? And it might be very the way they describe it or present it to me might sound kind of like a narrow scope, but I can see that they're already being, they're discovering, they they love it, but they kind of don't, that's not their thing anymore. They're like, they're hearing all this new stuff and they're really expanding their, their palette of music that they appreciate. And it's cool to see that process. I mean, we all started out like, you know, one song or whatever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not only that, but like, if I listen back to stuff that I thought was cool way back when i mean some of it has a rustic charm and some of you know but you know especially like hip-hop you know i listened like I, I what do i do you know once in a while when i'm exercising I'll, I'll just make these different playlists so i don't get bored and listen to the same stuff all the time and i'll listen back to like some old 90s hip-hop and i was engineering at that time and man some of the tracks that were big hits were terrible with the engineering, <laughs> just terrible. And then there was things that were great. And, and of course it also evolved. It's like you said, growing pains. Yeah. Um, and you hear some of those and hip hop had those. And when I go back and listen, I'm like, Oh my God, that was such a big hit. This engineering is just terrible, but it didn't stop the song from being popular. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. It's been fascinating to me too, to go back and listen to some original hip hop and hear that the, almost like the lack of, insight into how to put things together in a mix is what made it work. Oh yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, like crazy low end and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Crazy low end, you know, also just, you know, strange out of pitch, you know, out of tune pitch down samples that are just pitched down by a couple cents right. that just don't match the other ones. And then things that are rhythmically not matching up 
in terms of collage work, but it gives it that flammy, dark charm (laughs) that that perfectly quantized hip hop, keyboard hip hop kind of lost a little bit. And then there was also just some bad engineering. Well, so, all right, well, let's keep jumping forward here. Um, uh, We don't have to comment on it too much, but I do want to give a shout out to a new show that I watched that I think uh, rock stars, you should check it out. It's called The Get Down. And it is really entertaining to watch the sort of the birth of hip hop in in the Bronx and in New York with Grandmaster Flash. Um, Have you seen that one yet? No, I haven't seen that one, but everyone is telling me I need to watch it. And I will. I mean, I can say this. I was at the first Run DMC show at Danceteria, nice. their very first show. Uh, and I was really here in the 80s for the birth of hip hop. At that time, I would go see Africa Islam and Africa Bombada uh, play at Roxy's, which was down in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible time. It was it was even before, you know, hip hop was sort of a national thing. It was really a regional thing in New York. And I lived in California. I grew up in Oakland, California, Berkeley area, the Bay Area. And I used to bring back hip hop to these guys who really were only listening to like funk and soul and Mm -hmm. disco. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't know about hip hop. And they were and they heard these things like, you know, songs with just a drum machine and rapping. No one had done that. Right. And it was funny. And it was it was funny to watch the whole evolution of everything. Um, I was actually, I was an extra in Beat Street. And this was <laughs> cool. 19, yeah, you can see me if you like stop the camera, you can see me, uh, you know, little guy during some of the breakdancing competition scenes. And this was 1985. Yes, I think I Scary. still remember, I think I still remember stealing from my parents' liquor cabinet, going <laughs> to the movie theater with my good buddy, Jeff Jones. Uh, and then, you know, Drinking too much bad liquor, going in to see the movie, and then throwing up outside of the movie theater. <laughs> um, so yes, I, that that, oh, that, that movie, liquor. that time, that era—it's all very meaningful to me. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. so so, uh, Danny, tell us about. I mean, you've done a ton of stuff. Tell us about. Let's humanize it a little bit more. Although I feel like we've been humanizing it. Tell us about an important failure for you, or like a nightmare in the studio that happened. You know, you, you haven't always been able to make such fantastic stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, when we, when I started, I started as a musician that became a producer, but couldn't get it to sound the way I wanted it to sound. And then became an engineer just because I got tired of leaning over people and telling them what I wanted and annoying them and being annoyed myself. So that's, I mean, that was my odyssey to engineering. Biggest mistake, I think the biggest mistake was a mastering mistake that I made on a jazz album that was a reissue. We were moving the studio and we tried to pack in one more session before we moved it, but it was all kind of like Uh, it had been sort of taken apart and then only put back together enough for this session. And my monitoring was fine, but I accidentally mastered someone's, the way it bounced, I made someone's jazz album mono by mistake. Oh, wow. I know. It was terrible. Not cool mono. (laughs) Uh, I thought it was cool. I was hearing it in stereo, but it printed in mono and it was a rush job and they didn't check it. And nobody checked it. And they actually 
duplicated it and it was kind of a famous jazz musician and he got these really good reviews for the album but of course like one critic said and it was really curious that they decided to make it really retro and make it mono or something anyway oh uh, my gosh. yeah so that was terrible that was true story you know you do something for 30 years you're gonna make a mistake that was the worst one wow. for sure yeah, yeah, and that's the thing when you know <laughs> with records being pressed in di- the digital world, you can fix it and swap it out potentially. But in the physical world, you know, once it's out there, it's out there. And I had something <laughs> you know kind of similar where I did a production. It was um, I had invited all kinds of people to come in and play on it. Friends, you know, everybody was doing it as kind of a favor. They're doing it for the favor rate. So I really owed everybody, and I learned about sending, if you're producing, making sure that you get the credits right by sending them to everybody to proof, which I didn't do. And it wasn't until the record was out that a friend pointed out that like one of my best friends who played bass on the record, I had completely omitted his credit on the song. (laughs) I felt so terrible. Not not quite as, um, you know, all encompassing as mixing the entire thing in mono, but still, once it's out there, it's just like, what do you do? Yeah, no, like you said, uh, no, it wasn't good. And these days you could just swap a file. But at that point, there were whatever, 20,000 copies shrink wrapped. And, you know, like I said, people still liked it. And I like a lot of stuff that's in mono, but it was not on purpose. Well, it's going to become like the, <laughs> that copy of the Beatles album with the Butcher photo on the front cover. It'll be the one that's <laughs> worth so much money down the road. Exactly. Well, so now, um, how about sharing with us a real aha moment for you in the studio? Is there a time where it all just kind of clicked for you and you saw where you were headed? I think I was always, you know, from the beginning until now, I was always... Um, most concerned with hearing my music out and having it sound good. You know, I knew I knew what it, what it sounded like in the studio. I, I knew what it sounded like, you know, uh, in my car or whatever or headphones. But I always wanted to hear it on the radio and have it sound good. I wanted to hear it in a movie theater yeah. and have it sound good. I wanted to hear it in a club and have it sound good. And I wanted to hear it on television, watching TV, and have it sound good. And so my biggest aha moments were being, you know, going going to the movies, having popcorn, you know, seeing your song come up in a movie theater filled with people, and it sounded right. Yeah. It sounded right. Or being in the car and hearing on the radio your song. And having it sound good next to other songs. That would to me was everything. That's all I ever wanted, actually. Um, and it took me, you know, quite a long time to get to that place. But that that's all I wanted when I got in. I was like, I wanna I wanna be in my car and hear my track on the radio and have it sound good. <laughs> and, you know, and have and, and, and like the way it sounded. Um, so those were my big moments where I was like, you know what? All of this everything to get to this place. This makes it worth it, you know. You know, and it's funny because when those experiences come, radio, other things where they're, you know, bookended by other songs, wonderful if your song comes on and it really sounds better. But 
most likely you're just thrilled if it just doesn't suck against the other songs. If it right, sounds as good right. as the other songs, it's like it's ironic that we aspire to just try and be like a middle schooler and not stand out in a way, you know. Well, but 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 you know that's the thing, and I think that's the thing with mixing and mastering too, is you're. You know, you're getting rid of the problems. You're getting rid of the things that bug you. So if you get rid of everything that bugs you, then you're, (laughs) then it sounds good, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's, there's a million right answers. There's, you know, for any song, there's a million correct answers, but there are such things as wrong answers. Yeah. You know, that, (laughs) that was kind of an aha moment for me too, was, a point at which I began to describe my experience of engineering or recording a record as trying to remove the suck, you know, even in right. production. It's just yeah. like there's, there's, you know, it's wonderful to get to inspiration and all these things, but I guess the takeaway is you got plenty of work to do in front of you just to try and take out all the stuff that really is messing it up. 100%. You know, and what I also teach at the school is you get good at going from the most obvious thing that you need to fix to the next most obvious thing that you need to fix. And you have to proceed in that way. Because if you sit there messing around with little tiny things, but you have a huge glaring thing you need to fix, then you're wasting your time. Because when you go fix that big glaring thing, it changes the relative reality. Yes, And, and all that time you spent playing with little nuancey things was a waste of time and energy. So, so yeah, that is part of, you know, definitely production or anything, you know, trying to just go from the most obvious thing you need to fix to the next most obvious thing you need to fix. As long as you're not talking about something in my personal life, because I don't (laughs) want to address those things. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's called a therapist. And (laughs) I don't know, you know, what do they do? I don't know. All right. Well, well, so let's jump into some of the the meaty, nitty gritty in the studio stuff. Um, I'm, I'm written down a bunch of questions. They're all pretty much, they have EDM in caps. I don't know. Do you capitalize EDM? I, I seem to have done it when I wrote these down. I think you do. All I right, think, there you go. I think, yes, I think you do. So first lesson right there, we got an answer is uh, rock stars make sure to capitalize EDM when you write it. But yes. tell us more about EDM. Can you give us a quick tour of EDM? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, EDM, electronic dance music, it came out of the disco movement really sort of it did and i think in the 90s there was nervous records and masters at work and a lot of house music and i think it really came evolved from there and then from there it splintered into a million different branches of the tree i guess that's a mixed analogy that doesn't make sense but it sprouted (laughs) into different branches of the tree and a lot of it came out of i think london for a long time you know drum and bass and garage a garage and then of course hip-hop is not edm but hip-hop sort of turned into trap and trap is edm i would say if you wanted to be really particular you know edm is what now is called, you know, sort of more creative, musical, upbeat dance music. And mm-hmm. and if you go to the B-Port charts, they have, you know, these never-ending genre names. So now Big Room is the new one, and it's replacing Progressive House. But then there's Minimal, and there's Techno, and there's 
tech house. Um, And then there's progressive house. There's deep house. There's tropical house. uh, (laughs) There's future base. uh, There's future house. uh, And I'm serious. So far, uh, there's trap. uh, What am I missing? I think that's that's where's where's dubstep. There's dubstep. Is yes, dubstep. Absolutely. Thank you. There's dubstep. Not as big as it was maybe a couple of years ago. Well, they don't still... know about the the new one coming. Lidge style. They don't know about ah, that one yet. Yeah, I think you have to put bass and future in it. Okay. Future, <laughs> future Lidge bass style. I think that's you're going to be your title. But uh, but you know, and then there's IDM, which is intelligent dance music, and then EDM becomes more sort of like some you know, festival kind of music that's not um, as, you know, song-based as maybe a Calvin Harris kind of progressive house track or something like that mm-hmm. that's radio and pop or David Guetta or that kind of thing. So, uh, or or uh, Swedish House Mafia, you know, these kind of poppy, pop vocal productions things. Yeah. So so it's, it's a big world and all the genres are real and they have their own followings. And people go to certain clubs on certain nights or certain parties because they only like minimal. They want to stay in a minimal headspace uh, for three hours. Or they they only like tech house. Mm-hmm. They want to stay in a tech house vibe or, you know, whatever it is. Um, or techno, which is really having a huge resurgence. And there's this incredible – the new techno is like – it's incredibly well crafted with lots of dub influence. When I was doing all my hours of YouTube searching and looking for, you know, the secret to that Skrillex dubstep sound, I just I went through this phase where I I just had to know and and that's where I went to go look. And somebody had a comment on a YouTube video once where they said, you know, they they were hating on it. They just couldn't stand it. They said it just sounds like Transformers having sex. And I yeah. and a light bulb went off and I was like, Yes, that's it. That's what I love about it. <laughs> that was my comment reply. I was like, that's exactly it. You've nailed it on the head. Thank you for describing why I love it so much. Yeah, there was another one that said it sounded like, you know, a, a fax machine assault or something. I mean, there, you know, it's like, you know, like these funny dial-up connections and stuff. But yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. Dubstep. I think to my feeling, my sensibilities started kind of in England, very reggae influenced. And, uh, and, you know, if you listen to Mala, you know, some of the early things, it was really, it was sort of for reggae fans in a way, or, or a lot of the early stuff was, and then it kept getting harder and harder. And then there was bro step Um, uh, which is, and that's really true. And it it just got more mid range synth assaults on your ears about as much mid range as anybody should ever probably listen to. Any relation to bro country, which is making a big, uh, splash here in Nashville. Okay. No, I don't know about bro country. What is bro country? Well, I think that refers maybe more to the lyrical content. You know, it's just truck fishing beer girl. I, th- I like thought that. that's just country. I, you know, I'm no expert, man. I'm no expert. <laughs> that's my uh, out for all this stuff. Well, so 
thank okay. you for giving us that. I love <laughs> love that. You know, um, there was uh, you didn't mention two step. I feel like there was a garage two step style yeah. or something. Yes, there was garage two step. Um, yes, and I yes. was a big fan of of uh, Mike Skinner, The Streets, when that of came course. out. Of course. Um, and then there was a guy who came across my radar, and I've never been able to find him again. Called SK. Does that sound familiar to you? No. Oh well, still lost. Sorry, SK. I'll find you one day. We'll find you. Um, so now let's jump into some of the uh, how-to stuff. Now, sure. um, sh- Danny, share with us a secret about getting big bass in EDM. Ah, uh, yes. Big bass in EDM, there's a couple things about it. Um, one, you know, your basses have to be bright enough, you know? If people people think about bass as being a low-frequency instrument, and certainly there's a lot of low-frequency in bass, but if you don't have a good mid-range, uh, then you can't hear it on earbuds mm. and small speakers. And even in a big system, people underestimate how, you know, how the mid-range makes it feel big. Um, so to get good mid-range on your bass, usually we do multiband saturation. EQ, as we know, kind of moves energy around that exists, and saturation creates new energy. Mm-hmm. And so Trash 2 would be a great plug-in for multiband saturation. Uh, so that's a big one there. Then you have to make sure that your bass is sidechaining well and that it's playing nice with the kick. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say sidechaining is like um, two people dancing the tango. One person sticks their leg forward and the other person has to stick their leg back at the at that nice. exact time. And so that's how the bass and kick have to work. And the kick is usually dominant. And the bass has to step back. And so getting proper side chaining is critical. Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of traffic in the kick and the bass. So that's part of it. I think people are scared to put reverb on basses. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. Because if you don't know how to do it, it's sloppy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you do know how to do it, it's critical that your bass not be bone dry and echoically dry. Um, Interesting. Cool. And uh, and so that's a good one. I think I think those are those are the the main things. And then of course, you know, everyone thinks bass has to be mono, and it's not true. Only you know? jazz has to be mono. <laughs> Only jazz has to be mono. Exactly. Only a reissue of a stereo jazz album has to be mono. So when John Coltrane called you up and, and said, dude, what did you, no, never mind. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, uh, John Coltrane. No, uh, even his stuff, a lot of it. Love Supreme, is it stereo or mono? I'm pretty sure it's stereo. You know, the jazz, the, well, here's the thing, all right? Now that we're on the subject. Jazz engineering, and we'll get back to, to bass stuff but jazz engineering you know they went for these hard panning things sometimes it had to do with the way they mic stuff Mm -hmm. and so you know every once in a while you'd have miles davis sort of hard left and john coltrane hard right and it was kind of like hard music to listen to especially on headphones when like one guy's just like cranking on the saxophone in just one of your ears (laughs) That's why I made it mono because <laughs> I wanted it to go down the str- the center of your consciousness. Sounds like one of my mixes. <laughs> no, but um, 
but seriously, uh, but so sometimes mono is not a bad thing. Um, like Portishead, some of Portishead. Yeah. Pretty mono, mono reverbs, very mono productions, and there's a wonderful purity to it. Some '90s hip hop as well. What was the first uh, Portishead record? Was it just called Portishead? I think, it I was, think so. Right? Yeah, yeah, that had d- Dummy on it. Yes, yep. so good, yeah. so good. Oh, it took us gosh. that long to bring up Portishead. I, yeah, all um, right, amazing. So when it comes to widening bass sounds, wide is big, right? Width creates a big sound. Here we like to do multiband widening i like to do um maybe with uh ozone imager and you can widen the mids you can widen the highs and you can keep the low end the like everything below 300 pretty mono but this way too your bass feels big and wide A, a, a mono bass is fine but you can widen the the middle and the highs and it's actually quite nice so quick question about um, mono bass and one of the reasons why it exists. EDM plus vinyl records, is that a thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, vinyl records, you have to mono the low end when you you know go to duplication or when you're in the mastering phase because uh, before duplication, because if you have big stereo difference in the low frequencies on vinyl, the ne- the needle will skip, right? Uh, you also mm-hmm. have to DS heavily when you when you master vinyl. So in in clubs, there are often mono systems, and then of course if you're playing vinyl and everything's monoed below three hundred, you get a very unified response in the low end. Yeah. Um, but increasingly, clubs are not mono. New clubs are stereo. All my DJ people that I work with, there are more and more stereo clubs. So if you go to B-Port and you listen to the top 10 hits, they're very stereo. And if you check them in mono, lots of fun disappears, right? Cancellation, Haas effect, stereo effects, yeah. all things, they all kind of disappear. But usually if the low frequencies have been forced to mono and are mono compatible, people keep dancing. And if people keep dancing, then they, they won't throw drinks and leave. <laughs> so, you know, most people are not like dancing to that really cool, like hard panned t- tambourine track. So, so question about the stereo, the introduction of stereo, is it, it's not just because of the new PA systems. Does it have something to do with the fact that DJ is more of a celebrity now and it's like, we're facing the stage, and so we're actually experiencing stereo, whereas club music used to just be speakers all around the room? I love that theory. I hadn't thought about that. That's a very good theory. I think it's that, but I also think that club music is pop music um, and radio music, You know, especially last year, Calvin Harris, the biggest radio songs were EDM club songs. Mm -hmm. And I think they had to be stereo to compete and sound good next to other pop tracks. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, Plus we're listening on earbuds and we're we're taking this stuff home with us. Yeah, and you're on the the train commuting or you're in your car and, you know, you can't have this like mono pop song come on with Rihanna singing. Yeah. You know, so so I think there's... In one ear. (laughs) <laughs> in one ear, exactly. Um, no, yeah, no, please not in one ear. So I think that's what happened is as EDM became pop and adding more vocals and things, um, they fell into more of a pop stereo width production. 
Okay. Now, how about, you know, you started to talk about the side chain, the importance of it. How about the extreme version? What do we need to know about getting that awesome pumping sound that just makes, even when it's quiet, it sounds like it's so loud? Well, I mean, I think the pumping is energy that's created by the side chaining pretty much. Once you get the bass side chain ducking to the kick, you can get other things, other relationships side chaining. You can have the synths side chain duck to the kicks, but you can also have the synths, the synths uh, side chain duck multiband to the bass for to make a groove and also to do some sort of low mid management. Mm -hmm. So you can create all kinds of a very elaborate side chaining structure. Um, and this puts life in what could otherwise be kind of like stiff productions. Yeah. Um, so I hear, you know, these mixes now where it's like, you know, and it's this, and it really creates a sense of excitement. And a couple of questions come to mind when I hear that. One is, are there some usual things that are going to need that treatment in order to get that sound? Or is there, is it something where you just kind of need to try it on different stuff until you start arriving at it? And have you found like great processes for how to quickly try um, side chaining, compressing all these different elements of the mix? And then I'll ask my second question in a, in a moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, you know, <clears throat> my, the, my favorite side chain tools is uh, FabFilter Pro MB and also FabFilter Pro C2. Those cool. are just incredible side chaining tools, super precise, all kinds of control, really good sound. So, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's a mixing thing, sometimes it's a production thing. I think sometimes things that sound side chained actually just have some very elaborate sound design, especially when it comes to some envelope work you yeah, know a lot yeah. of lots of crazy volume uh very elaborate volume automation that can make for some glitchy glitchy things glitch hop there's another genre we forgot right. Gl glitch hop yeah so so uh sometimes it's the volume automation and sometimes it's it's side chaining which is kind of the symbiosis of a couple different elements and how they relate so i think either sometimes you want to make it really subtle so you feel a groove, but you don't hear the side chaining. Not Other me. Times no, it, not me. Okay. Okay. Sometimes you want to flaunt it, you know, and make it the big flavor. So I think it's it's sort of track dependent. Yeah, you haven't seen my record cover yet, man. I definitely I'm all about not subtle. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> so all right. Well, now here's an, the flip side to that question. So you figured out how to make all this pumping sound. Everything's breathing in the right ways. What are the things that you probably don't want to do any compression on um, and on, on either end of the spectrum? So, for example, do you typically have one of your kick drums that's just not getting compressed and it's just at a steady reference level that everything else is kind of pumping around? And then on the other end of the spectrum, do you typically want to make keep all your vocals safe from all that compression that's going on? Do they sort of stay steady and right on top of that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's compression on individual elements and groups to create power, because that's what compression does. It's it, you know when done properly, is it creates power. And then there's side chain compression, which is creating a relationship between two things. So a kick drum would probably have layers of compression to create power, 
but it would not be ducking to anything else. The kick is king or the kick is queen, whatever it is. The, you know, the kick is supreme. Now, in terms of vocals, you wouldn't have the vocal typically sidechain ducking to a kick unless you were James Blake or you're just some, you know, going for some super alternative production of trippy soundscape kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. that wouldn't be typical. But you could have the backgrounds duck to the lead. You could create that relationship. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You could have the backgrounds, you could do mid side ducking. And have the background's middle duck to the lead vocal so that the sides didn't go away. It was really transparent. But 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 space was made in the center for the – transparently for lead vocal. But you, pro- you probably – I know you're not subtle, but you probably wouldn't have too much vocal – flaunting right if your if your lead vocal is ducking with everything else it sort of gives the impression that you overcooked your mix yeah or that you left a cassette out in on your dashboard in the sun (laughs) or something you know i mean yeah and again you know if you're going for that sound that's cool but not typical Nice. That reminds me of a song by John Hartford, uh, a Nashville guy who played banjo and actually went to school with my mom and my uncle years ago. But uh, he had a record called, um, or a song on his record called, Don't Leave Your Records in the Sun or the Warp and they won't be good for anyone. I think this is not the first time I've mentioned it on the podcast either. People will either be glad I brought it back or enough, Lidge. All right, so... um, that's great stuff, man. I love hearing all about that. Let's jump to loud. Dance stuff usually wants to be, it needs to be loud enough, right? So yes. what do we need to know about making sure that it's loud and in your face? You know, when we do mastering, when I do mastering and also when we teach in the school, uh, there's two kinds of masters, right? There's a radio master and there's a a club master and the radio master can't be too loud because if it is too loud in radio transmission, the limiters squash down on it and they're just bots. They're not people. And it sounds bad. It's better to have it be a little bit quiet and have the expander pull it up a little bit than be too loud and have the limiters auto squash down on it. Sounds terrible on the radio. So radio mastering, they don't want to make it too loud. There's a pocket in which, you know, they want to to keep it so that it sounds good on the radio. And that's nice for radio mastering because making it sound, you know, we always say you can make it sound loud or you can make it sound good, but it's really hard to make it sound loud and good. Uh, <laughs> but you know. all the mixes that I want my mix to sound like somehow sound loud and good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, there are lots and lots of engineers out there who have figured out how to make it sound loud and good. And not just commercial mastering places, uh, but actually production camps all over the world that have figured out how to do it. I think what I, the way I teach it and the way I do it is I will get a reference track of something that would be likely played before or after the track. And I match the power you know, I, I, I don't I, I look at LU meters and RMS meters and stuff and but I'm really trying to switch between them and just think that if I was dancing, would I keep dancing or would I 
stop mm-hmm. dancing and throw my drink and leave. Um, and so uh, it's about matching the power. So, so power and loudness are not the same, right? Things can be very loud and not powerful. And things can be very powerful and not loud. And what people want in a dance club mastering, in a club mastering, is they want it loud and they want it powerful. You know, there's a bunch of secrets around that. One of them is what we call serial limiting, which is like serial killers. Uh, I thought that's what I do on Saturday mornings when I tell <laughs> tell my daughters that's enough. One bowl over a cartoon. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Except for this one, this cereal is with an S. But yes, it is the same. It's the exact same thing. Um, no, but but seriously, uh, you if you line up. If you have a few limiters working, then no single limiter has to do all the heavy lifting. And you can achieve a loudness that is actually a lot less if you if you try to get everything out of one limiter, that limiter is going to cry and distort and probably sound bad. But if you have two or three limiters all doing a little bit of the work, you get a more transparent limiting with more power and yeah. less artifacts. So that's one real um tactic in making it loud and you know i'm not one of those hater mastering engineers who thinks like oh well if it's loud it sounds bad no way it it can sound if it's loud it can sound bad but it can sound great um so so there that's one thing another thing if you're going to make it really loud is to have some serious side chaining going on if you're side if you're not side chaining hard enough you won't be able to get it loud, period. Yeah, that's interesting. Because um, that wall of congested low end prevents the loudness. Yes. Um, There's only so loud that any of that can get, right? It was just like, what, white noise at, <laughs> just white noise at zero dBFS. And it's like, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're mixing and you want to have that stuff that's up front, like right at that, right as front as front will go, then the only place left to go is to remove, is to push things back, right? Well, it's that. It's also that um, low frequencies eat up headroom more than any other part of the frequency spectrum. So what happens is if you don't have to make it as loud, you can keep more of that lowest octave, that like 30 to 60, right? Which you know, and it's cool because if it's if you don't have to make it as loud, there's some wonderful deep subs down there that are fun. But if you have to make it crazy, crazy loud, you do have to restrict some of this. What you know, the sub subs, mm-hmm. the really super low subs, and you know, it always makes me cry to cut them because I love my <laughs> sub frequencies. But um, as you start to trim them a little bit. You'll you, you'll see your volume, your 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 loudness come up. Yeah. So serial limiting, you know, a little reductive EQ on the super low lows, and then you know, getting the right mid range, um, which is part of loudness, just because our ears are not linear, and yeah. you know, and that and that's oftentimes a lot of saturation, and then you have to DS it, even if it's digital. You know, vinyl it vinyl would skip. Digital is not going to skip, but if you have, if you're listening to something very, very loud, you have to limit the dynamics in the mid range so that it doesn't hurt. 
and that it can sound smooth. Yeah. So that's another part of the loudness game. But uh, I'm not anti-loudness. I'm always up for the challenge. You know, Knife Party makes some very loud stuff, and it sounds great. Amon Tobin makes some very loud music that sounds great. Uh, there's lots of examples of really loud spinning records. You know, they really release quite a bit of very loud music that sounds wonderful and smooth and powerful and great. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not a hater when it comes to that. Well, so something that I think I've noticed about my own mixing and mastering, you know, for me, the ultimate, I, well, I'm not going to clubs so much. So for me, it's still all about the car. You know, I go to the car, sure. I turn sure. it up. I'm like, I've nice work, Lidge, where I'm like, oh, Lidge, you did it again. Go back and remix that thing. But something that kind of hit me one day was I kept, I tried, tried to pay attention to my own experience. And I realized that I think my indicator for how loud I want to turn up my stereo in my car to that, you know, that point of crank or whatever it is where I'm like, then that's me turning it up loud is the mid range. Yeah. That, that tells me in my ear that I have made it loud. And at that point, if the bass coming out of my car stereo seems balanced against that, then I've got the bass right. That's right. I mean, that that is what it is. I think, you know, the mid-range is the final frontier, is what I always tell everybody. Yeah. You know, everyone, the first thing people learn how to do is brighten stuff up. And they're like, wow, this is my bright period, like Picasso's, <laughs> Picasso's blue period or something. This is my bright period. Yeah. And then everything's bright for a month. And then, then people learn how to put subs in things. They're like... Look, I can put subs in things. This is just amazing. Then they start to fill in the mid-range. Yeah. And and for me, you know, I've been doing this, I mean, I hate to say it, like 30, over 30 years. I'm still learning. You know, I, I really am. And and it's wonderful. Like it's it's such a big playground between, you know, 300 and 2K. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's amazing. You know, what does 700 do? You know, what What does 900 do? What does 1.5K do? What do these things do? What is What does 500 do? What does it mean to me? Yes. Um, you know, and and it's it's so cool once you start to play in that playground a little bit because you find things. Um, That's great, man. Dude, you're, you're so full of quotable quotes. I mean, the playground between 300 and 2K, I just want to take that out of contents out of context and start saying that around the world. Put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, so so um, Danny, I'm going to keep pushing you, man. It's just too good. Your answers are fantastic. And it's not just because I'm a closet DJ. It's because <laughs> your answers are fantastic. Now that we've sort of established how to get the highs, the lows, and the middle, and everything as loud as you can go. Let's talk for a moment about the production and you know the why behind this stuff. So sure. what's the secret to creating an awesome groove in EDM? Side chaining, period. Well, and Abs mixing. I'm talking about production. Still, uh, same thing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because, you know, we, I mean, to start, see where we started uh, today talking and where we are, you know, if you get humans who are holding instruments to play together, they groove, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, and it's beautiful. If you take a bunch of hardened sample pack sounds and there are good sample packs out there that are not all hardened, but I'm saying there's a lot of that and you quantize every single thing you do, you know, and, and it, everything is quantized and, you know, you get for some pretty stiff 
sounding music. And if stiff is the aesthetic, um, <laughs> let's, just say, let's just say, I think I know what you're talking about and no, it wasn't the aesthetic I was going for. <laughs> but, but, but in some kinds of music, for example, in minimal techno, the stiffness and the quantized nature of it and the short sounds is part of what makes it have that aesthetic. But, and even that ha has grooving elements to it. But to make programming groove is side chaining and it's mixing and it's production. But that's what makes things groove and bounce. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's critical to get that part of your production you know, um, palette together because you, you need that, you know, and it's fun once you get everything to work together like that and everything's bouncing and grooving and ducking to somebody else. And it's, it's, you, 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 you create an incredible sound that you can only achieve by doing it that way. Now, what, what, let me, let me dig in a little deeper though. Let's, let's talk more about quantizing. So if maybe typically the kicks and the snares are kind of very on the grid, does that go for all the subdivisions and hi hats too, or do those? Is there room for looseness? Should people are people most more likely to make better sounding programmed drum beats if they lean towards the quantize and let it go right to the grid, or if they stay away from that? I, I mean, for for me, I like as little quantizing as possible. I like the human imperfection of things. I think it's more interesting. I think it's easier on the ears. I think it's more expressive. Uh, it requires a little bit of musicianship, not a ton, a little bit, because you can still play it for five minutes and pick your favorite four bars. But I, I like that, you know, so and that comes to drum programming and everything. Um, Do you have a sort of a controller surface? And it, it's responsive in a good way, and you would play things in by hand, maybe, or do you yes. drag yes. and drop things onto the grid and and have it be human somehow? No, I think you can you can drag and drop things onto the grid, and you can make it be human. But I think if there's you know a certain amount of performance in it, it makes it better. And you know, I'm finding too with me myself. You know, I started out as a producer, and but I, I'm much doing much more engineering these days. But a lot of the producers at the school, school in particular, they're almost sort of like producing as live performances and then editing. Mm. They almost kind of like pretend they're in their studio, but they pretend it's like a one-hour show or a thirty-minute show, and and they're kind of like producing and performing it and then they'll go back and they'll reassemble it and make sort of like the best five minute production out of what was sort of almost a performance thing and and i think you end up this way with a lot of good performance energy in your track and i think that seems to be working well for some people That's cool well we live in a world of Things like Ableton Live, you know, which make it a lot easier to sort of capture in live performances and loop them and do all that stuff. Well, so, um, Danny, one last question about sort of leaning towards the why, and then I'd love for you to tell us more about Mixmaster Wyatt Academy before we take a break and then, and then do the jam session after that. Tell us, how do you get a room full of people to dance? How do you keep them from throwing drinks and leaving the dance floor? I think that's the art of DJing. I don't think that's as much of a production thing, you know, mixing, mastering as it is 
you know, creating an arc in a in a DJ set and and playing with people's expectations. I think music is is always about tension and release, building attention, building the expectation, and then the release from delivering it. And I think that that you know that's the real art of DJing is playing with the familiar and the unfamiliar. You know, you can't just do all the familiar. It's too predictable and boring. You can't just do all the unfamiliar. It doesn't resonate with people because they don't know the music. Yeah. You know, you're not sparking the music inside of them because they've never heard it before. Ah, I like so, that. so, you know, so, so I think it's the art of, of being a good DJ and, and I'm a terrible DJ. Like I'm, <laughs> no, I'm terrible. I'm a selector, you know, that in a Jamaican sense, like I can pick good songs, but in terms of putting them together, making them flow, I mean, I just get kicked out of the party, basically, That's you know, cool. by the third or fourth song. Yeah. Well, I love it. Once again, a brilliant quote from you. Talk about sparking the music inside of the listener. That's wonderful, man. That's There's so many levels to that. There is, you know, you're playing the weird stuff that they don't understand, and then you begin to drop in the track that they're familiar with, and all of a sudden, they're, they own the music. Um, it's also the the theory that says don't put that harmony on that production because you got to leave room for the imagination. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, that, and that's what it is. And you're creating an uncomfortability, if that's a word, uh, when you're playing something they don't know. And then when they get to, you start to give them the familiar, there's, that's the tension in the release right there too. Yeah. You know, then they come into this familiar thing. And you know, when people, you, you, you play some of the familiar you you're activating that song inside of them, you know, and they're yeah. listening to, you know, they're listening externally, but they're listening internally too. It's brilliant. Um, you know, cause you know, I never even thought about it until just now, but all the f most favorite music I've probably ever had, the point at which I really thought it was my favorite is somehow I got it. Uh, you know, remember when you brought up smells like teen spirit, remember when that came out, we all thought, yeah, yeah, yeah that's our music. That that that's right. that's our music that you that everybody is thinks is popular now. <laughs> right. No, you know it's really funny too about especially two bands. You know, uh, Nirvana. You know, when it came out, it was so iconoclastic and anti-establishment and anti everything of what was happening at that time, both the lyrics, the sound of the music, the attitude of the music, and. You know, it's funny because from a recording production standpoint, it was super pop. Yeah. You know, totally. and all, I mean, a hundred percent. And they used the best stuff and they and they they made that picture on purpose. And so the kids are like, I don't want to hear that candy ass commercial music. I want to hear Nirvana. That's yeah. raw. But, it, you know, it well, was well, a very butch, butch looped <laughs> things. Oh, yeah. He looped performances. He'd use the best, you know, four bars, eight bars. Right. No, but exactly. But the attitude of the music was like, I'm here in a holy sweater, chain smoking cigarettes. I haven't washed my hair for five days, you know, and, and I have, you know, mascara and painted nails and I'm singing about my pain, you know, but and that was all true and happening. But there was some fancy mixing going on and production, like you said. Yeah. And when you listen to it now, it's actually incredibly meticulously produced in a pop way. 
you know, so, so, but you know, as a kid, you're not thinking about that stuff. You're, you're thinking about the attitude and the, and the energy of the music, but it's funny. You know, I even when go back and listen to the sex pistols or something, which was the same thing. But if you listen to it, it's pretty well produced actually. Or the Ramones. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, so it's funny. Well, right on. Well, so, so Danny, how about telling us about, uh, tell us a little bit about Mixed Master Wyatt Academy. Well, you know, uh, Basically, after a couple decades of engineering in New York City, I started teaching uh, because I never went to school and it took me five times as long to learn everything. And and it was fun because I started to teach, kind of stabilizing my schedule a little bit uh, with the freelance stuff and new families and things like that. But I also learned a ton because I hadn't gone to school and I started to fill in lots of blanks in my own knowledge, sort of as I started teaching at at SAE New York, and it continued on with DubSpot. And so, you know, after five years at one place, five years at another, uh, it just made sense to open up my own school. It took about six months of making the technology of online music education work. You and I talked about that before the interview mm-hmm. today, just how do you broadcast HD music and HD video live in real time? And it took us, we had to play with it for six months, but we opened a year ago this October. So it's our first anniversary. And uh, it started with just mixing and mastering. And then uh, we've added sound design and also composition and orchestration. And it's really a school for, we attract intermediate and advanced people. We don't really attract that many total beginners. I think there's enough stuff out there for total beginners. And maybe they, I don't know, you know, I think, you know, that kind of thing, like they can get everything from YouTube or Mac Pro Video or something. So we tend to attract more intermediate and advanced students who know their DAWs really well, but then after they take all their courses of learning their DAW, uh, they know that it doesn't sound like what's on B-Port or on the radio or in the clubs. They're, they're missing something. Right. So so we're the school that if you think you're missing something, we have it. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, our students really go on to sort of like we said earlier in the interview – hear their tracks on the radio, in the movie theaters, and in the clubs, and and we take you to that place. That's that's really always been the goal of the school. So everything's online, real teachers. Most of our core courses meet, uh, they're eight-week courses. They meet twice a week for an hour of live training. All the trainings are recorded so that if you want to watch it again, you can. You've accessed stuff for a year. There's three mixing courses. There's mixing foundations, which gives you the, you know, the foundations of saturation, compression, which everyone's confused about, uh, reverb, how to use that, gain structure, level balancing, EQ. That's our first eight-week course. And then you go to next level mixing, which is all of our multiband stuff and more advanced kind of mixing techniques building on mixing foundations. And then there's a mastering course for those who want to understand mastering more or master their own stuff. And then we have these very cool new course called Mixing Shootouts and Mastering Shootouts, where if you've graduated from the other core courses, you can come. They're limited to four people. And we just 
we just mix uh, a one track a week for four weeks. You present it on Tuesday. You get to hear everyone's version, get to see what you did right and what you could have done better. And then we do we present the final on Thursday and we have a winner. Uh, and then we, we, we go on to the next track. So those, those are one month shootout courses limited to four people. Cool. Um, yeah, it's really fun. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. And so by the time people finish mixing foundations, next level mixing and a month of shootouts, your mixing muscles are, are bigger than they are massive. They're massive. (laughs) They're bulging out of your, your mixing shirt. And, um, and it's, it's, it's really been incredible. We have like a, completely international student body it's everyone is from everywhere and now again we're also adding sound design so we we have sound design now just making fresh expressive sounds and also we have next level composition which is incredible uh for people who feel like they keep writing the same song over and over again or people who write a really sick section but then it takes them four days to write a change Mm -hmm. and they never finish the song and so we have just like we have a methodical approach to mixing and mastering we have a methodical approach to composition and orchestration so so our school doesn't show you how to use the DAW. Of course, we show you how to use your DAW, but that's not what we do. It's once you know things, you come to us and um, we're like a graduate school. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. I mean, you know, there's there's some things I noticed about it right away. So first of all, you talk about like the mixing a week. This is not for somebody who's casually, you know, doing it as a hobby. This is somebody who, who's ready to get serious about studying and really yes. going through a program that's going, you're going to come out on the other end knowing what you know. You know, even the the prices of your courses, they're not $20 courses. These are like, you know, you're ready to invest in your learning and commit to really doing a great job with this stuff. And I haven't been through and seen all your courses, but just browsing around the site, it was clear to me that it's organized in a really well-done way. And I mean, shoot, just having you on the podcast, hearing you talk about the stuff, I've already learned a ton. So um, that's awesome. Really cool stuff. Um, Rockstars, we're going to take a break now and we'll come back in just a sec for the jam session. Uh, Before we do, I want to encourage you to go to the show notes so that you can click through and get links to all the stuff we're talking about. It'll take you over to Mixmaster Wyatt. We'll include links to stuff we're chatting about in here as well. You can get all those at rsrockstars.com and then just search for Mixmaster Wyatt. Take you right there. Or if you're on your portable mobile device, you should be able to just click through with your finger on the show notes for the podcast. Danny, thanks for being here. We'll see you rockstars in a minute for the jam session. You got it, Lidge. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks 
and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Rock stars, welcome back. We're here for the jam session. My guest today is Danny Wyatt, a.k.a. Mixmaster Wyatt with Mixmaster Wyatt Academy. Welcome back, Danny hey, Mixmaster. You. Are you ready to jam? I'm ready to jam. Awesome, dude. When you were starting out and recording, what was one of the big obstacles that was holding you back? I think two things. One was a lack of a workflow. I think I didn't go to school. I didn't really learn. I tried to teach myself everything in an age of pre-YouTube. It took a very long time to learn like that. I think that was one thing. I think the second thing was when I started... It was the birth of digital and it was not mature yet. And so analog stuff was really expensive and digital stuff was not really ready for prime time. And I was caught in between these two things. Um, yeah. So I I had to wait for digital to mature in a way um, to get my foot in the door. And that is how I got my first platinum record with Blues Traveler, which was I was the only guy crazy enough to run Pro Tools in the early days and run a 48-track session when, you know, tech support thought I was crazy at Pro Tools. <laughs> I so, remember tech support. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They'd say, go reformat your hard drive and call us back in two weeks. Yes. That's all they would say to you. You know, it was – and it, but again, it was an early technology, and we all knew what we were getting into. But I think I was – when I started – Well, I didn't. <laughs> ah, well, it was probably good that you didn't. Yeah, I was sort of, I was, I think when I entered, I was in between cycles. Yeah, yeah, all right. Um, well, so now how about some of the best advice that you received as you were launching your recording and music? I mean, I think there's technical advice and there's philosophical advice. I think the philosophical advice is that, you know, if you do music, and even if it's not the main thing that you do, but if you love music, you you have to make music. It's not a choice. It's it's what makes you happy. And so, you know, everyone wants to make music to, for fame and fortune. But the real reason to make music and, and production and, and, and on any level is because you absolutely love it. To be clear about that, 
is important for your experience doing music so that you do music because because you have to because there's not even a choice and it would make you so unhappy to not have making music in your life in one way or another and and I think in in terms of success I think people talk about getting lucky but I think you have to be there to get lucky. I think there's a certain amount of stubbornness that you need in terms of being perseverant in music to have that moment of luck. You have to be there to be lucky, which means that you have to be stubborn and dedicated. I think you have to sacrifice a lot to have success in music. I think the god of music, the goddess of music, only appreciates sacrifice. It's mm -hmm. incredible. But it's true. So I think I think those are all philosophical things. I think on a technical level, I was able to watch some of the best engineers of our time do what they do. And Ted Jensen, to be in the room with him, uh, Elliot Shiner, Bob Power, Chris Athens. I mean, some people will know who these people are. Yeah. Some people may not. Um, but they're some of the top engineers of, of our century or whatever millennium and uh and i got to hang out and watch them uh, their attitude their demeanor at the job the way that they approached pressure the way that i saw them approach problems you know i i was able to 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 work with them in a real professional work setting with all everything that comes along with that and see what they did and there were so many workflows, techniques, philosophies that I was able to absorb. And that's what I've sort of put into my school. So so it, it's just so many to mention. I don't know if I could mention one, but it was, I think the, the, the greatest thing was being able to be in New York City at that, at the right time with all of these people during a certain part of music production heyday in New York and, and see everything happen um, yeah. was, was the luckiest thing to me in general. I think that's the best way I could answer it. Well, that's cool, man. That's cool. All right. Now, how about sharing with our listeners a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something that our rock stars could use today in their studio? I think a great thing that you have to get into everyone is just reductive EQ. Learning how to use EQ to remove the unwanted frequencies and clear space for an uncongested mix where everything is moving and grooving together and not bumping into each other. I think so many people do so much in terms of, you know, saturation, compression, limiting, and boosting EQ. But if you're not taking out the traffic, you can never get a good sound. Mm -hmm. And 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 when I when I lived with Elliot Shiner at River Sound for a year on and off, and I looked at his console, I remember looking at it, this vintage Neve, eighty sixty eight, whatever it was from Motown and. And I, I saw all these cuts in his EQ and I was just starting, I was just learning. And I, you know, when you learn EQ, you just boost everything. Yeah. You know, and you're like, wow, cool boost, you know, and, High and, end. <laughs> yay! you know, and, and so when I saw all the cuts, I was like, what do you, you know, Elliot, what, what is, what's going on here? And he was like, no, no, the good engineers, you know, the enlightened engineers, we cut 
and then we then we boost after we cut and the unenlightened engineers just boost over the garbage and they end up with these congested mixes so i know that doesn't that's not the sexiest topic in the world but reductive eq is critical and if people aren't doing it it's i think it's impossible to get a good sound. Yes, I think it's a great tip. And it sort of harkens back to what you were saying about sidechain compression. Compression is about taking levels down to move things out of the way. Reductive EQ is about taking levels down to move frequency ranges out of the way. Hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah. And and if you don't do it, you're going to get one of those situations where you push a fader up and nothing happens. And we've all had that experience. You know, you push up the kick and it doesn't get louder. Well, guess what? There's a problem. <laughs> and the problem is, is that, it, that the mix is congested in those frequencies. And you have to make a runway, you know, a clean runway for, for all the instruments. And then, of course, it changes as the arrangement changes. So it's critical. Good stuff. Well, now, how about sharing with Rockstar as a favorite hardware tool, something physical that when you've got it on sessions, you're always glad it's around? I think that the Empirical Labs Distressor is just like the best thing ever in modern compression engineering yeah. in terms of physical hardware. And when people ask me, they say, oh, I'm building home studio. I'm going to be doing a lot of tracking. I want to have a compressor in line as I record, and I want to have one that I can mix with. I always recommend that. Mm -hmm. It's such a ridiculous beast. They put so many classic compressors inside that compressor. It can do so many things. You you can, you know, put harmonic distortion in, not put it in. You know, filter things, have it be an LA-2A, have it be an 1176. You can absolutely crush things mm -hmm. and take all the dynamics away with no distortion. Or you can take all the dynamics away with a ton of distortion. Um, there's nothing it can't handle. It has ridiculous headroom. I think, you know, that is just, if you're going to get a single dynamics hardware tool for recording, you cannot beat that thing, in my opinion. Yeah, that's so that, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a big fan of that. I don't have one right now, but I've used them like crazy in the past, and I miss it. It's reminding oh, me. I got to uh, get back to my distressor. <laughs> I'll send you two for Christmas. All right, um, cool. Well, thank you. So so now how about a, either a favorite software tool for the studio or something that you're just excited about, you know, something recent that you're really digging um, that would be cool, you know, on a session? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I'm in a dynamics mood tonight. So uh I think for software, I'm a huge fan of FabFilter. You know, they're out of Dutch, out of Amsterdam. And they, you know, in, in our school, we have two kinds of tools. We have clean digital technical tools like Isotope and FabFilter. And then we have analog vintage modeled things like UAD and, and Slate. And you kind of have to have both to get to Rome. Um, and so within FabFilter ProMB, is an unbelievable multiband dynamics tool because it can do downward compression, which is what we usually think of as being compression, but it can do upwards compression and it can be do downwards expansion and upwards expansion and it can do it multiband and it also can do it mid-side processing. 
and it's clean. And once you have all the saturation going on that you want and you just want to manipulate the signal in a HD digital way, you can. Um, and I don't think that there's anything exactly like it. I know that there's similar stuff, but in my opinion, there's nothing exactly like Pro MB. So it's a unique and powerful tool that um, I think everyone should master because once you get good at Pro MB, you can do all kinds of things that you never thought you could do before. That's cool. I have uh, the FabFilter Pro EQ2, which I've been messing around with, and we actually just made a fun video about it recently. And it's really cool, and it's fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to checking out the compressors and the multiband. Great tip on that. So let's just, I think I'm going to zip forward here. Um, We've been talking about so much cool stuff. I'm going to take us toward the finish line and ask you this hypothetical question. If you were to take the uh, the Wayback Studio machine and you could go back to meet early Danny Wyatt, young Danny Wyatt, and <laughs> go give him some advice, what would you say to yourself is the single most important thing to becoming a rock star of the studio? Uh, find a really good audio production school and get an education. <laughs> um, for, for sure. I think I started... I just, I, I learned by myself with other young producers who also didn't really know what they were doing. I didn't go to audio school and it took a lot longer. So, you know, I think in retrospect, if I could talk to young Danny Wyatt with hair, um, I would say, go to audio school, you know, find the best one you can find that does the things you're interested in learning and take classes and start to learn because figuring out all of these things all by yourself is a long plastic hallway, uh, you know, and there's also a negative side. Uh, you know, it's, it, it just, it can take too long. There's too much contradictory information out there and it's great to walk in a path that's been cut by people who've been walking in that path for decades and they know where to go and to save you time. And you'll always come up with your own original workflows and techniques, of course. But I would tell young Danny to find a school and get an audio education. It's interesting. This idea just popped into my head, a reminder of something, a comic book I I read when I was a kid. But, you know, at some point along the way, at at all points along the way, you're going to be having to discover and invent some new aspect to your ability to make records and why delay your achievements by so many years having to reinvent the wheel initially if you can learn it and start out with that much more knowledge and i'm remembering this comic book of uh i think it was donald duck or something like that (laughs) and there was this they went and they found this mad professor who'd been stuck on an island forever, and he was inventing all these incredible things. So he comes up and he shows him his new invention, and it's the the uh, ballpoint ink pen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, just think what he could have been inventing if he already knew all these basics already. <laughs> no, exactly, and and I think it's one of the things that inspired me to 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 teach and to also create my own school is just how much fun. It is to be in a community with other people who are like-minded, who want to also learn, and uh, to be able to make big progress in your music in a shorter period of time, and you you know where you're not inventing a ballpoint pen, and and you're and you're you're able to 
get up to speed and then create your own techniques and everything. I think, you know, and the funny thing about me now, again, doing this for a long time now, it keeps me in ridiculously good shape in terms of mixing and mastering and audio production. I'm always learning. I'm still always learning. Yeah. Uh, which is just it, so much fun for me because when I'm not teaching, I'm freelancing. So I'm always putting all of our systems into practice all the time. And it's fun for me to come out of a class and I learn something and I get to put it into my own practice. It's it's so much fun. It's incredible. That's cool. Mixmaster, Danny, please tell us and our listeners how they can find you. How can they learn more about you and what you do? And follow you. You can follow us on Twitter, Mixmaster Wyatt. But the best thing is to go to MixmasterWyatt.com, MixmasterWyatt.com, and uh, look at the website. Explore the website. Look at the courses. You know, make your way around the website. And we have a live chat on our website that is almost always open, and everybody uses it for big and little things. So, if you are curious about a course or what course would be best for you, uh, and if you want to talk to me, just hit us on the live chat and just be like, "Hey." You know, I'm interested in mixing foundations starting in November or February or whatever, and we will take care of you. So uh, MixMasterWyatt.com is the best. We have uh, a free trial for a month where you can watch videos, all kinds of things. So just come to the website, hit us on the live chat, and we can get the dialogue started. Very cool. And Rockstars, um, I want to thank Mixmaster Wyatt for joining us on on this podcast on Recording Studio Rockstars. And I want to reiterate how awesome it is, all the stuff that you taught us on this show. I mean, this was like a treasure trove of cool stuff that you talked about and that you taught us about EDM, about production, mixing, mastering, all of it. So Rockstars, I want to encourage you to please help us help more people and use the share button. If you really enjoyed this episode with Danny Wyatt, just even on your phone, find the podcast. There's usually a share button right there. Send it. Pick one friend that you've got a text number of or an email that you think might be interested in. Just send it to them or post it on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you like to share stuff. But I uh, just wanted to put that out there and, and encourage you to please spread the word. So, Danny, thanks so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. You completely rock, and you, uh, what was the word we had before? You rage, dude. Uh, I, I rock and I rage. Uh, Lich, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed um, being on the show. Rockstars, uh, come hang out with us at the school. I, we have something for everyone. We have courses without teachers. If you just want to binge watch you know, hundreds of hours of video, you can do that too. Um, but thank you for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Groovy, man. Well, thank you. And we'll see you around the studio and the school. Okay, perfect. Thank All you right. for having me. All Cheers, right. man. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.